0: it's like a conversation it's a convo it's not it's it's i'm not i'm i'm here you know i'm here to help you with whatever whatever it is you need content wise right so yeah but the the byproduct is i get to i get to benefit from it and this is how you do a podcast just so that you know key to the podcast this normally happens before you before you do any recording but it I, i always because I'm a documentary guy, it starts the moment you're in front of a camera, even if you don't know the camera's on. Sometimes that's the best part of the documentary. Best documentary footage I've ever gotten was when nobody knew I was recording. They are like, did you, did you, are you recording that? Yeah, of course I'm recording it. So we mark it by the date. What's today's date? Today is uh, February the 24th and uh i am here with a former student beverly hills high school student and uh, that was a uh, that was some some time ago uh what year was that ariel ariel benayan and, and when he was in high school he was he was a uh he was a real standout especially in band that was kind of his thing he was a he was a one of those you know one of the band geeks but in a good way proud. and
1: so proud
0: Yeah, and we're, you know, some of the best people that actually um, make it into the media department come from the band, because band is like, it's athletes too, because it's like, you have to be focused, you have to be able to do that kind of regimented work, and you don't find a lot of, what was that?
1: You do a lot of heavy lift I did a lot of heavy lifting, I played the sousaphone. Right. A lot of back, just muscles everywhere.
0: Oh no doubt, yeah. You 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 came in handy. I mean, imagine the the tonnage we have to we have to move for board meetings. That was not like that was not for the weak hearted. More than that, it wasn't for the physically inept either. You had to, you had to be in shape to be able to actually be on that crew. Otherwise, you just couldn't. You wouldn't make you, you wouldn't make it out of boot camp.
1: Yeah, and still have a lot of fond memories from that time, like those are those were I mean the it's a cliche now but that's kind of like those were the days and getting into that sneak what the high school was like at night doing what KPEV did I think back in 2012 it's kind of hard to imagine how things were so different like our entire understanding of the internet of politics social media was just Looking back on it, it was only like the dawn of, of that, the era that we're in now. And who knows, maybe we're in the end of a certain era right now.
0: You were at the yeah, you were at the opening of it. You were you were you were really at the dawn of that whole uh beginning. But yeah, look what it sets you up really. Look at some of the characters that were that that were already into it deep. Um uh was the Yamaka where what was his uh-huh. name? Abraham, that guy—you couldn't get him away from a computer. That guy was like already—he was already like sold. He was already on the drip of, uh, you know, of digital morphine. We couldn't remove him from it. Uh, everybody now was. What's he do now?
1: He's an accountant, and I think in Chicago, and he's married. Really? Yeah. Yeah.
0: i the last time I heard from him, he was in. We had a, a long distance conversation in Israel, and I think he was drunk. <laughs> He had to say hi. He, he remembered. Yeah, of course, of course. though. so now your journey. Uh, where? Oh, let me let me just ask you this. Looking back at your high school experience, what? You know, you went to Beverly Hills High School. Beverly Hills High School isn't just anywhere. It's it's a it 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 covers a unique place in the world that is. Uh, you know, it just it automatically creates this instant reaction when you say the word i mean you know it because you've been away from it long enough and you people ask you right but what it does is just it's like streets are lined with gold and how wow how did you do that but there's something to it because people who make it into beverly whatever means possible they're kind of a grade above everybody else because they figured it out they figured out what it what it takes to get there how to get there how to put themselves in that position they just want to be part of that that mix because that mix that mix can only foster better things for anybody who's in it is the idea
1: yeah walk the walk and talk the talk i know a lot of people i mean right now in my situation they're like it's easy to look back and be like how how easy can someone get starstruck and kind of be in front of these people or this like area and just be like, oh, what about this? What about that? And realizing how like, on one end, my experience at Beverly was like, it's kind of the Novocaine you didn't take for your, you mentioned how you, you went to the dentist, so you didn't take Novocaine, but like that experience kind of knowing that and being like, oh yeah, I don't like, I already know that, you know, walking someplace I just want I just want to get somewhere like get out of my way photographers <laughs> or something like that right. to, like navigate that world While at the same time also like having the experience to make fun of it and kind of know the the certain histories and certain ideas like I think there was this one of my professors at UCLA after I I went to SMC transferred to UCLA the Persian route um she is a history professor who was kind of a historian of los angeles and knows about okay. all the history and encouraged me to say like and she went to beverly hills high school wow and encouraged me to like to look at that history like look at your surroundings look at what you've seen and like you know over there is where marilyn monroe used to get some ice cream and now it's what a smoothie shop that that's like 20 dollars a smoothie but most people don't know or see that
0: Oh no, it's huge. Once if you really know the history, you can really kind of see where it all came from, how it just just like the way the internet, you're at the beginning of the internet kind of to see how that what that morphed into, but not to know where it came from and have an idea of what it was like just before that kind of erases all that piece of history and all that kind of foundation, it's just like foundational stuff for why things are the way they are. Yeah, it's huge. History's huge once, once you lose history, I always see that when, when you lose somebody that's been around for a long time and they're just these vessels of knowledge and history and everything is like, it's only in one place and you got to like drain them, get it all on tape, get it on paper, get as much as you can out of them. Because once that vessel's gone, they're the keeper of all that history and it's like gone, gone forever. In many ways, you're kind of like that with
1: um, your dad's legacy right with the world's greatest sinner
0: oh i'm it right. i'm it yeah I'm, I'm it so much that it's, keeping, uh, it's exhausting right well it is because people think well, you're making a millions and millions of dollars off that no i'm not i'm conjuring the illusion i'm the illusionist i'm 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 keeping the flame of a legacy i'm i'm the i'm the legacy keeper right and so that's kind of what you do well you do it because it's a way of honoring honoring your you know your your dad it's my job it's like it it's not a job it's like i like it because it's it gives me it gives me a purpose and it's and it's um i it's just valid it's nobody else is going to do it i'm i'm the one to do it and there are other people the truth is there's people out there that are just like me but i'm i'm the i'm the centerpiece and and it's done some amazing things you know it's like I, i was at tcm and here we are. TCM is like become the coveted historian of all films because of Ted Turner's buy of the MGM library back when they thought it was worthless. He was smart enough to recognize that that was history, and all that history. He could look into the future and see this digital world. I'm going to take those and turn it. In. He turned it into a you know an industry, and Turner was really the only large entity that ever gave the world's greatest center a platform that ever gave it a real there it was you got invited to a screening not a screening but the film festival these are big film festivals in hollywood they occupy the whole place for a couple weeks and it's 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 huge and only the biggest films only the biggest stars i'm on a list with leo dicaprio and and you know everybody who's somebody in that in that whole world martin scorsese right and uh there's the world's greatest sinner playing with Ben Hur and playing with the the greatest Hollywood films that were ever made, and there's my dad's film in the lineup. It's it's the midnight screening. If you, you don't if you don't talk about like a, a you know an ending with a cherry on top, this is it. It doesn't get any better than that. That that uh, here's an obscure film that found its way and we got to talk there's thousands of films that probably deserve the same kind of reverence and and the same kind of uh you know opportunity but there it is world's greatest center uh at one of the biggest festivals and playing on that network you know for years uh, as special screenings so yeah, yeah and of that's like... all because oh go ahead no it's all because of the life of that it's is it was always it's it's like always trying to reinvent an old film you got a 60 year old film who who is interested in the 60 year old film honestly right so you do a a, do a new documentary about the 60 year old film and now you've got a, a a new a new piece of film with an old piece of film and it lends credence to the new film but the film the truth is that film has a life of its own and it has a following that is that's uh you don't get you don't get four four out of five stars unless it, it means something to, to enough people
1: yeah and that's considered like the one of the first cult classic movies right with i think martin i remember reading it somewhere that martin scorsese says like timothy carey is the kind of guy you you wouldn't bring home to your girlfriend's house or to your parents right. to your girlfriend's house just kind of yeah. like it has that reputation and even like I, I remember seeing it on i don't remember where but i remember seeing it and knowing kind of these like more cult classic movies like Rocky Horror Picture Show or- Oh, exactly. um, Anything John Waters has done and just kind of the the fun, ridiculous of it. I think at one point, your father makes out with an old woman and kind of calls himself a god and has a snake and a very funny goatee that is so like, on a certain sense, is like, is this guy, does this guy know? Like, it's kind of like the Tommy Wiseau I don't know if you know who he is. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. Tell me why did that movie. What was it called? The Room. Uh, the Room. Yeah. And, and then they-
1: he did it without any intention of it being sort of like this, this twist of turn. He wanted to be like Oscar nominated. Worthy. But I can tell your, your, your dad with this movie is just sort of like he's having fun. And it's kind of like the genius balance of it. Like, look at me having fun. But look at how amazing and weird this is
0: oh exactly it it was the epitome of authenticity kind of the 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 balance like you said of of taking on the art knowing that you're the motor and at the end of the movie most people don't recognize that you just watched 80 90 minutes of 100 Timothy Carey in front of the frame just acting his ass off that's all it was was like he was able to dance for 80 minutes and you're like what just happened (laughs) what was that and that
1: that still resonates with a lot of them i mean i know i think i'm pretty sure did that movie come out or did the world greatest sinner come out before his work with stanley kubrick with like paths of glory or no he had
0: had, that was like his training ground that's where he learned so he learned so he came out he hitchhiked from new york in like 1950s and he hitchhiked straight out into the desert into like those westerns and he got he got into these into these um westerns because that's what his agent his agent said look it was like humphrey bogart's agent said go out there's a doing a western in california just show up on the set and uh that's that's my advice to you so that's what he did hitchhiked ended up out in the wow. desert and he next thing you know he's on a said talk about you like you know people that want something i mean who do you know that's gonna like start hitchhiking from new york out into like a new mexico desert because he wants to be in a an extra in a film right it's yeah it's just unbelievable and i think it's one of those um rare
1: stories like i think the only person that comes to mind with that kind of like wackiness who is uh, like obviously so like influence from your dad is someone like quentin tarantino with his stories and even with like his first movie reservoir dogs right Dedicated to Timothy Carey, that kind of zaniness, that story, and I'm sure now it seems a little exhausting talking about how that guy is, is riffing off your dad in a certain way. But i uh, was like, th- those dots are being connected, right?
0: Oh and yeah, I- well because because people who are really cinephiles, people are really into that have taken up as much. Even if you didn't, you don't have to be a cinephile to enjoy something. But uh, it's a connection there because because Quentin was just starting out and and I happened to cross his path at MGM and we both you know he, he saw a photo of my dad in uh, the reaper graphics room because he knew somebody at somebody at MGM that let him come in and make a copy of his first draft of Reservoir Dogs and when he was making copies he looked up on the wall and he goes what are you doing with Timothy Carey's picture and he goes look my script is dedicated to Timothy Carey and he goes, Oh, he says, I'm in Timothy Carey's play. Cause you know, his son works here. He goes, really? And they left a note on my desk cause I was out. It's was Quentin Tarantino. I'm Quentin Tarantino. I really like to meet with you. I got, here's my script. It's dedicated to your dad. I just found out you work here. Could we like have lunch? I'm like, all right. So we, I call him up and he, he comes over guys that has holes in his shoes. He's like kind of just down and out. And, it's like, it's wants like to he was me.
1: hitchhiking right
0: yeah exactly yeah he, and he's like and he's just i go what is this guy huh he's on cocaine or something and we walk across hate- we, we walk to the commissary and go eat something i wanted to buy him something but he didn't want anything to eat he just wanted to talk and i said look and he wanted to tell me all about my dad and everything is like this movie i watched i watched i watched uh stanley kubrick's the killing and this is like this the script is like it's kind of like a ripoff of the killings, what I did, I, even the, the time sequence, the time change in it is a direct ripoff. And I, I, your dad inspired me to do it when I saw your dad. That's all I needed. That's what that's what moved me in the direction of making Reservoir Dogs. You, this part was written for your dad. My dad's going to play the mob boss in it. And then when Harvey Cattell got um, involved, it fell apart because we went and met. He calls me because he wrote hey, me, I got like he told me he got the money for the film. We're making it 20th century, bring your dad over. I want him to meet. I want him to meet everybody on the, you know, the, the producers. So we go meet everybody and, and Quentin was like starstruck. He got a poster. My dad signed a poster for him with my dad's picture on it. And they were like, and there's a guy in the middle of all these other kind of, kind of guys that are supposed to be the, the executives of it. And one of them was barefoot. And that guy was the guy in charge. I didn't recognize him either, really, because I'm not a big movie guy. And anyway, I didn't just didn't recognize me, just didn't, didn't fit who I thought. Later I figured, oh, that's who that was. Anyway, th- at some point, they're all gushing about my dad in different movies. And and then and then Harvey Keitel, it turns out, was the guy who was barefoot. And Harvey Keitel is telling my dad how great he was in something. And then Harvey Keitel was waiting for some compliment back, just anything to recognize that, you know, who I am. My dad didn't know who he was and he, I could just he had see like
1: power. He had the control. He, he, he was, he was the one with like he had Harvey Keitel's skull in his hand.
0: No, of. he did. He did. But at that, you're exactly right. He owned it because he Harvey Keitel was so jealous because everybody was just so enamored by my dad that he just wanted a little respect. And you just know things when you, you just know it by being in the room. And what happened in that moment was Harvey Keitel said, who's next? And then everybody like, it was like deadpan silence. They're all like, is he joking? He goes, no, he's not joking. Because everybody knew in that moment that Timothy Carey disrespected me and that he's not going to be in my movie. Because without me, you, Reservoir Dogs isn't getting done. And that was the end of that. And my dad walked out and he didn't really mind. He's like, that guy, the barefoot guy, I think he's an actor. He knew it. He, he added it all up. He knew like what happened, but he didn't really mind. He, he, he had fun just meeting everybody. And that was that. Get, we get home and we get a call on my dad's voicemail. And it was from Lawrence Tierney. Lawrence Tierney is, was the guy who got his part. And he left a message saying, Hey Tim, these assholes gave me your pot. <laughs> and then I, I ran into Quentin Tarantino a lot further down the line. I because I didn't I never watched the movie for years. Because here this guy is calling me for weeks, just reading me stuff. I'm like his best friend. And then once the movie gets made, he's like, I, I don't exist anymore. And I had wrote, I had helped him too. I told him, Look, this is what you need to do. You need to take your movie and get letters of intent that they want to be you know that they think you'd be a good director and that um, get every actor big name star that you can get get him to sign a document that says I think this is an amazing movie I think this guy uh, is going to do a great job directing sign me up once you get your funding in place I'm I'm in I want a part in this movie and he started collecting all those and one of them it was collected from um, you know he, he ended up in the hands of Harvey Keitel but the first letter came from Timothy Carey and wow. then, yeah and later he said I told him I told him exactly what I told you just now I ran into at the crate what was it called the horse and carriage which was a bar in Hollywood I ran into Quentin he came in he was in there with a girl and some French guy and walks right up to me and the last conversation that we had which was I don't know, five years earlier, 10 years earlier, whatever it was a long time ago that I had last talked to Quentin and I had left off with a whole dissertation on insect trainer. We we're talking about farting and, and flatulence and he picked it up exactly like where we left it off. It was unbelievable. He started basically just, it was like, it like was just a minute after I, the last time I talked to him. It was pretty pretty uncanny he said look no it wasn't wasn't that Harvey didn't like your dad it was because when we ended up casting Christopher Penn Christopher Penn looked more like Harvey Keitel, looked more like Lawrence Tierney's dad and Harvey Keitel said that's those are the that's a that's a relationship that looks normal but if you put Timothy Carey in there it wouldn't look like they were son and uh, father so that made sense to me do you have any other
1: moments where I feel like a lot of Hollywood types kind of come to you with these kind of requests or ask these kind of questions with you and your kind of dad's legacy? Do you ever get annoyed or tired of just being that, that kind of like crypt keeper? You're just like, yeah, get away from me, Quentin Tarantino, or get away from me, whoever you are. Like, I just, I'm,
0: I'm busy. Nah, no, because I think it's cool that people even care. You know, and because Hollywood, what people think Hollywood is, see, I'm a, I'm a I'm fortunate in that I'm someone who can come to a place like Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills is like yawning for me, right? I grew up with like Timothy Carey. That's like the, the, the man the world loves to hate. He was like the, the ultimate bad guy. Some die like, you know, a hundred times on screen. It's like when you when you grow up with someone who's bigger than life, everything else pales by comparison. So whenever whenever somebody asks or I get invited, you know, I was in the last trip I took, and I've been all over the world with my dad's films and my documentaries. The last place we went was uh, Tas, Tasmania. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they wanted the, this insane museum, this the museum that, um, that, that exists in Tasmania, built into like this Tasmanian mountain. It's unbelievable. It goes like five stories down into this granite. Um, they just blow out the granite and built stories down right into the side of this, uh, this geological, uh, and they had Europeans building it, like these Austrians and Germans in there, these architects it's just absolutely nuts right up against the ocean it's just a, it's an architectural feat you got to see to to believe it's unbelievable but bigger than that was the guy who built it was a like a mathematical genius and he learned how to count numbers in card games and he wow. basically cleaned out the australian casino world and then he got because he knew how to count numbers he was he was doing like a rain man thing on everybody and then he and then they and then he went into europe the u.s and he would get kicked out everywhere once they figured out who he was because they'd clean out he'd clean out the casinos and what he ended up doing was he ended up building a team and the team he taught the team exactly how to read read numbers so they were card reading and they would just they would rotate the planet and so all the revenue was going into the investment of this museum and then he'd buy every he'd build another floor and buy these just crazy super valuable art exhibits and put it in the floor buy another one it was just this and that's what it is and so they and they start this film festival years ago called mofo mofo um what's it stand for I, was, I don't know but i was i was there i, I made it into the center of mofo <laughs> there i was in a you know, after an 18 hour uh uh you know jet jet uh jet trip across the uh the pacific it was unbelievable i was there for just like a couple days i left on a friday came back to school like on a tuesday and all just non-stop uh is it was, it was it was unbelievable but uh yeah so so sinner still got still got a life it has a life as much as i put into it and my dad's kind of legacy is something that you know I, I i'm i have an ongoing documentary that i keep revamping and i keep putting together i've started a podcast which you know you're going to end up on and that podcast is uh, uh it's got a lot of stories like this and and when I and when I do them, you know, all of a sudden, Amazon, the account on Amazon where I got the, uh, I got movies that are downloadable. Yeah, Amazon Prime, <laughs> the world's greatest sinner gets lit up because people are listening to it, and the podcast is in the top one hundred all over Europe. So I've I've like without really any marketing or without anything, just kind of taking all my old shows and putting a new front on them, explaining them in in contemporary terms and adding my voice to the front of it. I'm talking about things I did 10, 20, and even things my dad did 50 years ago that are part of my archive. It's just crazy. My dad started out with just recorders. He had one recorder, and the recorder back then was the studio because it was all radio. If you had a really good master recorder, a reel-to-reel, and you knew how to use it, you were a you were a, a bona fide media entity. So my dad, he embarked on getting, of course, you had to get it first thing he'd he'd purchase is you know a reel to reel. And it was the centerpiece of his studio. He'd do acting classes, he would, he would practice uh, whatever he needed to practice and where whatever event was going on, that would be transported to it. And he would do a whole you know play by play of what was going on. And so I have this huge this huge archive of audio recordings that go all the way back to the 50s and I'm just they're both the first indie indie
1: filmmaker too oh right? yeah doing it all on his own and not not kind of building his own not not kind of relying on people in a way on studios in a way that's just like we want this we want that especially given i don't know where they filmed the world's greatest sooner i like was it it was so cal obviously right
0: Yeah. When they, the world's greatest center was he built his own studio in, in El Monte. El Monte is like known as the end of the Santa Fe trail. It's not just any town. It was the end of the Santa Fe trail. That was the end of coming over, you know, the San Gabriel mountains from Oregon and the trail ended at El Monte. That was it. Now beyond El Monte was wilderness. And it was like, it turned into a real kind of uh outlaw town it was like oh you see find him in El Monte all these early history of El Monte was all about outlaws because that's where they'd all end up they'd all be moving west and they'd all end up in El Monte all the brothels all the all the gangsters were all from El Monte and so um, my dad when he came here he moved to he moved to uh, from New York he ended up in Watts he ended up in a black neighborhood but his neighbor was the guy who built the watts tower this italian guy they were buddies the watts tower is still there it's a it's like a, a monument The guy who built the whole thing out of glass bottles and stuff wow. it's just unbelievable you got to look it up but the guy who who's responsible for the watts tower was my dad's friend so then my dad moved out of watts and um and this is this is something kind of interesting Watts, my dad I don't think he grew up in a Mexican neighborhood. I mean, he didn't grow up in a black neighborhood in New York. He grew up in a an Italian neighborhood because he was his, he's half Italian, half Irish, and but his his neighborhood was in a was an Irish was was predominantly Italian neighborhood. There were some Irish, but predominantly Italian, Brooklyn. And um, when he came to California to get into acting, he ended up moving downtown L.A. because that was kind of like transportation system was there and that's where he that's where he ended up renting then he got a he rented a house for a long time and then when he did paths of glory um he uh he met my mother in Germany so I'm wow. I'm the by I'm the byproduct of a Stanley Kubrick film just so that you know wow I'm it the by, now knowing you yeah I'm, Stanley Kubrick yeah, I'm, I'm the byproduct of a Stanley Kubrick film St- an interesting thing about the Stanley Kubrick film was um, my, uh, my dad married my mother who worked at the hotel, the Bayerische Hof, which was like where all the, the celebrities stayed in, in, uh, in the production because they took over a town in Munich uh, to shoot Paths of Glory, which was a Kirk Douglas, Aldolf Manju. It had like this European cast too. It was, it was huge. It was a, for Stanley Kubrick, it was the biggest project he ever did just prior to that, he had done the killing with my dad. to starred my dad in Sterling Hayden, and he had success with that. So he was able to he was able to go um, and take on this um, this movie. It was a Kirk Douglas produced project, but uh, Kirk Douglas was a star. Kirk Douglas wasn't the producer, but he had producer power, and he was like he bankrolled it because they put him in it. And funny thing was. The, there's only one woman in Pads of Glory, and Pads of Glory is an anti war film. And it would have won the Academy Award, but it was anti war. And Bridge Over a River Kwai when it came out that year, and it was a pro war. And which one do you think won the Oscar? Of course, it was the pro one. Yeah, it was the 50s. Yeah. And so it was like, but uh, there's only one woman in the film. And it's, a, it's this woman who plays this captured German. Yeah, uh, you know, she's a captured Beautiful moment yeah that woman who sings that song at the end where everybody cries um that woman became stanley kubrick's wife so stanley kubrick and my dad married their lifelong wives and for hollywood nobody stays married once in hollywood but both of them did and they were they were buddies i've got interviews with like the cinematographer talking about how stanley kubrick came to watch like the, the dailies of the world's greatest sinner and what he what he had to say about it to kind of you know they're both because they were both from new york and and then not long ago i interviewed the producer of the killing pads of glory he did a bunch of stanley kubrick films not just not just those two but uh james his name is james harris and james harris in the interview i asked him so what was you know you guys worked with him twice and then stanley kubrick cast them in another film called uh, one Eye jacks but but one Eye jacks became a the first and only movie brando ever directed but brando and stanley kubrick who was on the movie first had a falling out and then brando said i'm directing it and uh there was a point when they were doing that movie, which was a Western, it's a huge Western uh, that, that Stanley Kubrick had my dad come with them when he was meeting with Brando because my dad was his bodyguard because Brando was, was, was really causing so much friction and trying to get physical with, with Brando over issues that they called my Stanley said, Hey, I want you to come with me. I already cast you in the movie. So you're just coming but the real thing was that my dad was the muscle to keep Brando in place. <laughs> that's your dad was that go- tall, guy, right? Tall. How,
1: um, how tall was he? He was like 6'5". Oh yeah, so a lot of muscle for, to go against Brando. Oh yeah, no, well just to keep Brando in check. Wow, that's really funny. And how, yeah. how, I can just imagine that. I mean, these these are two kind of personalities that one is kind of notorious for just being an all around, all around like rough person, rough man. And just, I'm mean, speaking of Brando and right. having that sort of like, someone needs to be the lion tamer, you know, and your dad was the lion tamer. And in a way I feel like you're kind of the lion tamer with not only his, his legacy, just kind of throwing everyone that's coming at you. You're like, Oh, it's back up Watch out, with a whip, but also with like the students at Beverly too, in a way, like the, the, the wild, the wild, um, some of the wild things that happen in, in in kbev and what's going on and you're just kind of like this i mean you have a unique position too i mean i don't i don't know if there's a stanley kubrick at beverly that you're protecting but
0: you know yeah no i'm yeah i'm like a lot of people who come in and never see me operating kind of what that what that place is because it's a vortex right the vortex you're happens never yeah. The vortex happens once I enter the building, that's the vortex. And once, the once, once I'm ensconced in the building, the vortex begins and everybody knows that there's a vortex and guys that come into it. Are like, Holy shit. Like it's like, I'm like at a major international airport in your traffic control. I don't know how you do all that stuff and just manage to like, you have all these like you know these wheels spinning on on sticks that just don't fall off. But I've been doing it long enough. I've gotten more refined since you were there. But it never because because the idea is it's it's all a chill thing anyway. It's all perspective. I don't I don't see it as I've been like I've I've had jobs where I'm 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 dealing with network executives and critical timelines and people's people's careers on the line every second of the day. And people are cutthroat and nasty and rotten. I've gotten fired by heads of studios, so going to Beverly's like a cakewalk. It's like joining the you know the Girl Scouts or something. It's like just give you a break. It's like has it's it's all fun. So all I could do is have fun. It's all it's all one hundred percent. What I've learned though it's more than build. it. What was that?
1: It's fun and it's character building. It's not. It's a different kind of way to learn and a different kind of place to kind of engage with students because you know how especially with like being on Zoom, like it's all in high school, it's all study, 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 or it's all like work, work, work. And I feel like a class or like being around you as a teacher kind of shows students a different way of learning and a different way of of experiencing knowledge. Cause I know once I got out of Beverly Hills High School, went to Santa Monica College, it was just sort of like that kind of freedom felt familiar, you know? That kind of freedom was going to a place that it's not like I I remember going to San Juan College and saying like I could just walk off campus I don't need I'm like no one's even checking if I'm gonna stay like if I don't show up to class like I'll get a zero but I'm not gonna be like sent to an office anywhere Or I'm not like it's like that kind of liberty is is there that you can only see under your kind of guidance that's sort of like vortex you know sometimes when there's a hurricane you see a cow fly by and you feel like maybe i can fly like that too you know
0: oh exactly now there's look that's that's like what i what i bring to that campus is a sense of if you come into my world that means you're you're looking for an elective you've elected to like have something that's different than anything else and this, this is like this is something that you should find you should find some fun in. You should be free of like all the academic rigors and 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 the, the kind of uh, commonplace school environment. It's like throw that out. There's like a creative environment. I'm gonna give you as much latitude as you possibly can. I'm gonna let you get in as much trouble. And when you do, you know, I'm gonna stop you from hanging yourself, give you as much rope as you can. It's like it's the whole idea is wow, I got a space where I could actually be myself. And you discover, you put all these people together that maybe they don't even like each other. Before you know it, they're all working with each other and they're actually doing something. And it's like making it out into the world. And and you don't even realize you guys are all working. You're actually getting stuff done and there's people appreciating your stuff and and you're just churning stuff out and people don't realize it, even if it's just a board meeting, right? Board meetings, You think about it. It might not seem like anything, but those things are huge. Those things were like, there, there are classes in like Boston, master's classes at universities watching our productions as the central theme for their curriculum. And we were supplying the fodder for that done by high school students, right? And these were back in the days when analog was like, you know, it's like there's serious work having to push a quarter ton of gear up a hill and setting it all up. Uh, for a for a single shoot in an auditorium setting up 12 mics putting up four cameras having the whole just the the whole spectrum of a live shoot happening in real time and then streaming to you know spectrum cable back then i think it was warner 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 uh, cable what was it back then was it warner i think it was warner time is time Time warner yeah time warner but here i mean we were it we were we we created local celebrities. I mean, who do you know in that in any of our classes that turned themselves into local celebrities? Anybody? I know. Well, me and the crew. I guess with David
1: and Abraham, John, Brian, Jack, and yeah, we started Parham. That's it, Parham. That's that was your era. We 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 were like, hey, let's write some questions. Make let Parham talk to these just random people, hallways, and we like Parham was just like, yeah, I'll do it. And I remember that's, a te- that's technically my first writing job. And now I'm in a creative writing program, master's of fiction, and just kind of understanding that kind of freedom and just letting it have fun. And like with that low budget, low quality wackiness that it's kind of like with your, what your dad was doing. Like-
0: Oh, exactly. Write,
1: write questions of like, what's your favorite color Muppet? And Parham, God bless his soul. I mean, he's still alive, but like he's, he's a wholesome, innocent man. He would read these questions and he'd just be like, what does this mean?" And he has a nice beautiful Persian accent and the, the audience member would just be confused as well. And I think that was like the end of our year and the beginning of our, my senior year. and Parham was like two years below us. And that kind of slowly started escalating and I gra- like my crew graduated and then Parham took he, he developed wings and took flight. If, if I'm not mistaken and he became class president he,
0: he got too much power in the world and then there were they- people chasing him down rodeo drive for autographs <laughs> the guy was like we had we had Parham marathons where we'd show like 24-hour Parham shows it was he, he had taken over the airways. <laughs> And here was, an, here was an obscure character who nobody really knew, but after the fame of of, of Parham, his show Parham Talks Girls, he he parlayed his, you know, he, he was he was a, a nobody who became a massive somebody in Beverly Hills. Literally, he parlayed it into winning. You know, he was he was uh, the ASB president, but then when they found out that he won, they said that we can't give it to him. <laughs> we have to split it. He has to be like, he has to be shared with it with the other person who was running. So he, and then worst of all, his mother said, he has to clean up his act. His Parham talks girl thing has to go because it's just too racy. And it's, it's not serving him. And so I said, Parham, come on, you built a whole lifetime doing this. You might as well finish it up. His senior year. He goes, no. I said, why not? This is my mother won't feed me. I can't, if she said, if I go on another Parham, I can't have dinner. Like, what? Oh man. He did come back and do a couple of shows since he since he'd been gone, but
1: Wow well, yeah and it's just shows like it's it's kind of that magic that you can only make with that kind of I don't want to say low budget, but I guess with no one's certain eyes are watching and so you can get a, you can kind of you're more creative. Oh point. yeah.
0: well, they say necessity is the mother of invention. And as far as creative writing, you know creative writing, there's there's something you should know if you're entering the, the realm of creative writing there was a my my father's one of my father's best friends probably no doubt his best friend was a filmmaker and that was john cassavetes john cassavetes did these independent films starting in the 50s about the same time as my my father was making the world's greatest center he did a film and all his films were love stories, love stories is the international, you know, it's, it's the gold standard for success because those things, you put some subtitles, send it anywhere. And everybody's going to, Oh, I see that. That's so. that's how they do that. But it's so, it's so easily understood where my, you know, John Cassavetes tried to distribute the world's greatest center to the same uh, distributors in Sweden and in Germany and these, these France, these successful places that, that he, he saw um, success in and they looked at the film like what it was they couldn't like how do you put how do you translate that not no one's gonna know what's going on it was just not like sorry that won't fit anywhere that's strictly americana and you know look we nobody even understands it here until maybe today but long story short is uh his idea was and his success was he'd pin all his scripts. He'd put all his like his wife in it, Jenna Rollins, who was a big actress. She did a lot of a lot of um, you know a lot of work with him. And he won an Oscar. She won an Oscar for uh, in one of his movies. Um, uh, uh, I forgot the Name that it. It was woman. It was, wasn't wasn't woman. It was uh, it was. Uh, it'll come to me. But uh, this is what he said. This is for a writer, and this is huge. After his you know his illustrious career, I don't know what he did. A dozen movies and super successful. He would go to universities and talk, and they'd invite him in. You know, hey, one of the one somebody in a writing program asked him. I think it was at NYU. Said, "How is it you wrote all these like amazing scripts? What in I mean, these personal scripts about relationships? How did you do it? Could you like give me you know a young writer some insight how to do it?" And this is what he said. He said. Say what you are, not what you want to be, not what you have to be. Just say what you are. And what you are is good enough. And like the room fell silent. I'm like, what? That's it? Yeah, just say what you are, not what you want to be, not what you have to be. Just say what you are. And what you are is good enough. That's how I wrote all my scripts. That's how I wrote all my scripts. And you know what that means? That means don't be looking everywhere to steal everybody's fingerprints and put them all over your piece of work. Just look at your own fingerprint and put that on your work. And that's good enough. Because then be original it'll be authentic it'll be you're not trying to be anything else except yourself because everybody's got a story take your story color it a little color as much as you need but it's your story it's personal to you and you take that story and whether you're making it up or it's derived from your own you know what what you you know half derived and half but everybody's got their own story and it has to be your voice it has to be it has to come from you if it doesn't everything you know you're never gonna you're never gonna reach a place where everybody instantly knows that that's a that's an ariel benign that's the no doubt that didn't come from any place else except there right it's like it's it's got his fingerprint all over it but that's where most people fall short because they don't think their fingerprint is worthy they don't think that the you know everybody's frightened commercialism demands that look hollywood hollywood you know, classic Hollywood has this, and if you don't have that, what do you got? You can't sell that to that guy because he only buys classic Hollywood films. Anything else that doesn't fit into the into the mill. You're not going to get a distributor. Good luck. And maybe that's that's maybe that's it. See, independence has to do with let fortune do her worst. No matter what it brings, as long as I never lose my 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 independence right and that's what that's what real art is is to be independent and to be uh to be your own master it's the it's the um it's the only way true independent people can can operate is on their own but you know everybody needs money so if you need money people only really finance things that look like a duck walk like a duck all hollywood cinema is is imagine a a Campbell soup line. And all they do is slap on different labels, but it's got all the same ingredients, but they call it something completely different.
1: That reminds me of something I heard interesting from one of my workshop classes where I wasn't in this class, but I heard it from someone else, from a friend of mine who was that this one girl, it was a poetry class. And this one girl was upset that another student may or may not have plagiarized the po- a poem of hers and was claiming that they both had the same ideas same images turns out they just were they were both the same type of un- not very creative you know it's just like they wrote the same type of poem which is about roses and love and happiness because they were stuck in that sort of that mentality of like of not
0: yeah they couldn't reveal their their authentic self so they're just trying to be what people thought they should be yeah That's it was, the... it,
1: it's kind of funny how cookie cutter is and it's also even a funnier story too because it's just like it's like imagine two people in two different places writing almost the same exact thing and then bringing it together and then one of them saying like this person stole me stole me. <laughs> right <laughs> and well, that, them even like kind of being oblivious like what do you
0: mean exactly so now what, what's been your trek out there, Ariel, in terms of um, your experience in college? How, how have you liked it? How do you like your professors? How do you like what they're teaching you? How do you like the whole process?
1: Well, I've been in a couple of institutions and they've all been unique and interesting and challenging for me in a different way from going to San Monica College and go, having that freedom and kind of seeing all, all types of students come together and me just kind of learning to love my subjects and love what I do and building the idea of who I am and transferring to a college like UCLA, which is like the opposite. Everyone who most people there were like, looked like they wanted to be class president. And I can kind of, you can kind of pick out all those people who came from community colleges from LA and the rest of the country where it's just like Every, they dress differently and it's not like these people are acting differently or they're worse people it's just seeing that difference and you know at San Monica College you might the largest classroom I had was probably like 40 or 50 students at UCLA it was like 300 and kind of saying like how can I make a good impression how can I talk to people in a way or the professor in a way that kind of makes me shine or makes them notice me like sitting in the front and being engaged and Kind of developing this relationship, and then coming out of Santa UCLA, graduating with a bachelor's of English, and then kind of wandering around. and I don't know if you remember the news. There was a shooting at UCLA that I was a, that I was on the campus. And three years before that, I think there was a shooting at Santa Monica College. A lot of these emotions just coming up and being like, "What do I want to do?" I'm experiencing these things, and I'm sure I know you. You know this, Mr. Carey. How? Um, Persian moms, Persian Jewish moms can be worrying. And I remember coming home that day of the UCLA shooting and my mom just saying like, I felt safer in Iran than I did here. Wow. And just having that connection and being like, I survived these two things. My parents survived all these things for them to say that, like, what am I gonna do now? And me gearing towards this idea of like, what if I do something more towards that English creative writing Arts And I found Chapman University here in Orange County, which this is where I'm sitting currently, a few miles away from the the Chapman University campus. And having done that like English degree, like Chapman offers, I'm I'm plugging the program right now, I guess, where they have a master's in English and a master's in fine arts for creative writing. And I did the master's of fiction last year through COVID, it was really weird and it was more like an extended um, research paper but now like I'm I have some creative works published I have some poems published I think you that you find interesting they're about toilets and farting (laughs) it's just fun and an interesting sort of perspective but also like creative feel like communicating with real writers and real professional writers like there, I, I got to meet this, this some professors who have won book awards who changed their industry. And this this one professor, James Blaylock, he was one of the co-founders of the steampunk movement. And in a in a bar that that's like kind of grimy, and you step in and the feet are your feet are all sticky. And he's kind of saying like, "Oh yeah, it was always sticky, especially when when I was there in that bar with my friend Tim Powers, and we thought of steampunk." Or I have another professor who. Her name is Carolyn Forche, and she she um she got she went to El Salvador a few years before the, the um things turned sour there in the 70s, and she saw firsthand what American involvement was with politics. And then she came to the United States and wrote a poem about it, just one single poem in a book, and just changed the entire poet poetic atmosphere. Wow. And kind of encountering her and working with her alongside these professors and another one that was really fun is richard bausch who is like the old-time short story master from the south and he's from georgia oh wow and just kind of talking to these people and letting them know like my anxieties and my fears and they're like yeah yeah that's that's normal that's you're doing the right thing. like when you're feeling those things it's okay to feel those things and as long as you push through and carry on with that and it made me realize that no matter what field I was going into, it didn't matter if I became a doctor, lawyer, engineer, or like if I, right now I'm, I'm technically professor benign, master's student teacher for first year students at Chapman University. Nice. Like that feeling, thank you, that feeling of anxiety was always going to be there. And no matter where I went, it's just about, about coming to terms with that and overcoming that and going full circle of saying like, all right, I went through this journey. I went through this path. I met a lot of people along the way, including amazing Mr. Kerry, Romeo Carey over here and seeing how like, why, why shouldn't I be happy? Why shouldn't I go for this idea of like something that seems appealing and and going for this ideal of what, what it means to make
0: me happy. Well, you 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 hit you hit on a lot of things right there. You this whole conversation is just boiled into the the critical mass of uh, uh, you know it's like atomic energy has to be reduced to its smallest particles to be able to come it become effective. But you have to isolate the right particles. You just did that. And the, the truth of the matter is, if you don't get your mind straight. If you don't get your food straight, if you don't get the elements, just the basic elements in order, it's hard to get your life in order, right? And so starting with your mind, you have to really become clear with who you are, what you are, and what the world, how, how how you perceive the world. And this is what I boiled it down to. Since we really spoke in high school, I wanna know these things. And whatever I had back then, I've got a clear, pristine kind of more kind of, I gotta be able to translate it into, into common kind of understanding. And I'm there now. And it works like this. We're all born into the world as an infinite being with all this this, this just unlimited potential. It's really, it's just, it's, that's what we are. And we come into the world a young child comes into the world knowing pure consciousness and pure consciousness is right here, right now. That's why you put a little ball in front of him, make it disappear. And they're just like, ah, where'd the ball go? Because it's everything is right here. Just a dog is like that. A dog is right here in the moment. He's, 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 all he's going to do is love you. And he's just, all he knows is right here. That's what our true nature is. And that's who we truly are. But what happens by the time you're five, six, seven years old, we have taken on so many experiences we archive every experience and in that archive we call the archive like a hard drive everything gets stored on the hard drive this moment today this trauma this lesson about who to be afraid of this lesson about who's okay this lesson about whatever it was it all reaches a critical mass right about seven years old max and then the hard drive becomes an alien intelligence that knocks on your door and says, Ariel, I got this. I got all the answers to everything you ever need. Take a back seat. Let me drive your ship. And we got it all solved. And then you say, go right ahead. Uh, That that living in the present moment, living right here where it all really happens, I'm going to forget about that because I'm going to move back here and I'm going to rely on the hard drive for all the answers. What you what 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 you need to know is that's a therapy lesson that I give this guy. This guy's a super wealthy uh, real estate uh, czar that I've known most of my life. He calls me for all his all his. Uh, I'm I I should be charging. I'd be I'd be really well off as his therapist. But anyway. So what happens is the the hard drive can never live in the present moment. The present moment is all that matters and where your focus should be. The present moment is all we got. And when you don't realize that life only unfolds in the present moment and everything beyond the present moment is a thought form, it has nothing to do with the present moment. It's only a thought form. The present moment is all anyone ever has. Where will your future arrive? It can only arrive in the present moment. Whatever it is you intend for yourself, you know, in the future, you set that course, you 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 have a target because that's what we're really good at, and we we move towards it. But what you have to be cognizant of is what is in the present moment. And then you have to learn the separation between, you can call it your ego. I call it your hard drive. You can call it that voice in your head that never shuts up. You can't shut it up. That voice in your head. Isn't you, the voice in your head is the hard drive that comes to life. That, that, that wants to run your life. Cause you've allowed it the steering wheel. So it tells you what to do at every second of the day. That guy just ran you over. He just cut you off. Go catch up to them, go flip them off. It tells you what to do. But the problem with the hard drive is it's not connected to the present moment. It's connected to the past. Yeah, so, right.
1: yeah. yeah. I know that. You- I call it, I, I for me, I see more like a, a half child, half angry dog. You know how children, I worked with a lot of kids after I graduated from Beverly, like as a karate instructor, then a personal tutor, piano teacher, worked at a Kumon. and, is having that voice is sort of like a little child saying, like, mm-hmm. i trying to mock you. And coming to terms of knowing how to control that and how to be like, hey, this isn't me. This isn't, like, I know personally, because just writing is, it's like a, such a painful process. Like, I ask my professors saying, like, hey, does it get any easier? And they're probably in their 70s, 80s. They look at me and they just say, nope. <laughs> and how, how they how they overcome that is just by saying, like, if you're really afraid of this, then that's a sign that you're really challenging yourself in a way that, like, if it doesn't make you afraid, you're not really building that tolerance towards that voice, that ego, that child, the hard drive.
0: Right. Well, yeah. well, this 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 is what you have to you have to recognize the hard drive because the hard drive is a valuable asset. That's everything you you work to become and 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 to to corner and and to have in your in your file cabinet. It's huge. You need it for day to day operation. Instinct, Yeah. You need it because it's your crossroad. This, this is the problem. The problem is, let me start with this. Someone is going to go jump off the Golden State Bridge. They say, I can't live with myself. I can't live with myself because he's dealing with two people. I can't live with myself. Someone's got to go. Who's going to win that argument? The ego going to win because you don't know the separation between the two. So you have to define the separation. You have to recognize it. You have to recognize the voice in your head for the for who it is. And the true essence, the real you, the one that was there, the infinite being, is supposed to be running the unfolding moments of your life. And you're supposed to cross-reference the hard drive and say, nice, nice computation, but it doesn't apply to the present moment. Because the hard drive can't apply to the present moment because it only knows what happened in the past. And lots of times it comes up with the right answer. But you have to override it. You have to be in the driver's seat as a cross reference to the hard drive and recognize the moment for what it is. And because once you learn to do that, then the moment becomes you're free of the hard drive and you become a super kind of power that has this ability to discern the moment for what it is and to conjure the best path to, to and it might be married partly with what the hard drive comes up with, but more importantly, it's, it's a hybrid and the hybrid After you've done that enough times, you elevate your game to one that's in the moment, for the moment, cross-referenced against the hard drive. Now you're a superpower. And now nothing can frighten you because you know that all you have is the present moment. Nothing to be fearful of because the fear is only coming from the hard drive. There is no fear except the hard drive. Understand that all pain, all all one's woes and, 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 and misery is narrated by you the author it's your you create the the narrative nobody else does you change the narrative you've got a whole different world it's just all it's predicated on your script writing for your state of mind your your every moment of every second of the day you're the narrator of it done and so once you once you recognize that see consciousness is the difference between if you've ever had like a lucid dream if you've ever had a deep dream a deep dream in a deep dream. When you're just zonked out that type, that type of dream, you're in a hermetically sealed world. And that world is you're in for the ride and you have absolutely no say in its outcome, wherever it's going, it's, that's a nightmare. And those nightmares always reach these, these, these awful endings because you can't enter into it. That's a dream that is void of consciousness the different, another dream is a lucid dream where you're, you're, you got your foot cocked in the door of consciousness. In that dream, you become the hero. You become the person who sees what it is and rescues the day. And the outcome is always golden. That's like your wet dream. That's like your, that's, the, that's the, the, the greatest dream you'll ever have because you have your foot in the door of consciousness. You're partly awake. And so that's when you're sleeping, right? So you have this opportunity to be in a nightmare where there's zero consciousness, or you have this lucid dream where you have the opportunity to be the hero and the dream becomes the reality that you create. You have a creative force in it that that allows the dream to become what it becomes. And that happens at night. But during the day, if you're not conscious of consciousness, you'll live the nightmare during the day.
1: Yeah, I don't know if you heard of the Brazilian writer Agnes Bar, or was it Agnes Varda? Or no, it's um. Oh, let me look it up. Agua Viva. It's Clarice Lispector. Mm, I don't know wow. if you heard of her.
0: No, I haven't heard of her.
1: A surrealist writer. Mm. Yeah, Agua Viva Surrealist. That's the name of the book. It's called. It translates into "Stream of Life," oh, and it's nice. basically about all that present momentness. And it's it's a. It's about it's it's pretty surreal. It just opens up about her wanting to eat placenta. Oh it's, wow! To wow. enter that, that present state, and it's just sort of like it doesn't make sense, but it's, it's like a da,
0: it's it's like a Dalian nightmare or something, you know, like yeah. a Dalian you know, painting. And she just kind of takes that and says,
1: like, you know what? I'm just gonna go with it. I don't. I'm I'm gonna try to be in that present state and and be exactly where I need to be because. Right she feels that anxiety and i remember when i first read that i'm like wow okay i'm not as anxious as i need to be anymore
0: well let me tell you the other thing about anxiousness and nerves and and things like that i remember once i was shooting something and it was in beverly hills i forgot what it was was at the kodak uh, kodak theater it was at one of those things and i got right up close to everybody who's getting ready to to mind i was behind the scenes and who is it sydney poitier He's walking around, pacing, pacing, and I'm like shooting him, pacing. He's like going, and I walk up to him. I had the camera going too, and I go, "How you doing?" He goes, "Man, I'm nervous. If you could see, I'm nervous. I'm so nervous." Wait, I go, "You're Sidney Poitier. You shouldn't be nervous." He goes, "Yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm giving the big award, and I got to do this whole speech, and there's no script, and it's all memorized, and it's like, okay, I'll I'll give this guy a little time because he's really wound up." And I walked away going. Well, this guy's been doing this for 50 years. Why is this guy why is this guy so frazzled by what he does? and then and you realize first of all, if you're doing something that you really like, if you're doing something that you've discovered is bigger than life and you happen to be part of it, you sh- if you're not nervous, it means you're not alive and you haven't found what you're supposed to be doing. If you're not scared and frightened by it, then
1: yeah it's it's, that chance of risk that everything will fall apart and and then
0: you'll be like what do i do now no but you're supposed to embrace it because it only means one thing see when you're scared when you're frightened to death there's only there's only two there's only two really versions of being frightened by something one is stay away from it you're gonna get in trouble you're gonna get arrested not a good thing go the other way because this is it's like all right that that's the same exact nerves and frightened kind of demeanor and, and kind of uh overwhelming sensation is 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 derived because it's supposed to save you but the other version is you're supposed to go right into the tunnel of fear And that's the one you're supposed to know. Well, that one's for me. That's mine. And that means that I'm doing something that's bigger than life. That means I'm living life to my fullest. And and that's the sensation you're supposed to embrace and say, thank you, God, that I could actually live this larger than life and have this sensation because that sensation is what life is all about. That's like you're glittering you know what i mean you're the little stardust on fire i'm doing something i'm supposed to be doing thank you and and you're supposed to embrace it it's like bring it on because this is my sweet spot
1: i don't know if you heard of the director david lynch yeah of course yeah i feel like that's kind of what he's doing with this idea of fear you know like it's kind of like he makes you afraid but it's kind of there's a kind of delay and you see like all of a sudden, you see beyond that fear, and you're just kind of floating on the surface. And you're like, Oh, where am I? Like, it's like, like, like
0: blue velvet.
1: Oh, yeah, blue velvet, Twin Peaks. I mean, all his movies do that in a way, right? It's, uh, it's kind of weird and interesting. And I mean, it's 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 scary, but it's more than scary. And even with like movies, like, I don't know if you've seen the movie, it came out like a few years ago, Midsummer.
0: Yeah, no, I haven't seen it. I don't see a lot of movies, to be honest with you. It's a good but- one. put it
1: on your list where you see this this girl it starts out in the beginning the girl her sister is bipolar and the sister kind of murders her mom and her dad and so the girl's an orphan Mm. and she's like in college and her boyfriend is not a good boyfriend and kind of wants to sneak away into this festival in Sweden called the Midsummer Festival just to kind of you know have a good time without her and she she's like oh let me come I want to be there and then so they go to the festival and things slowly kind of change. And it turns out she's in a cult. And, you know, the usual horror story is like, oh, everyone dies. And it's she barely makes it out alive. But this movie changes it where it's just that she finds family again. And wow. she finds happiness with these mm. people who are murdering everybody and kind of their old archaic ways. And towards the end of the movie, you're just like, it's just mind-blowing you she's happy for once and the only time you see her smile is at the end and i'm not going to spoil anything
0: yeah you can't spoil it for me it's fine.
1: at the end she like her boyfriend ends up being murdered and she's just happy about it she's covering all these flowers what yeah she's in this gown of flowers and her boyfriend is just kind of tossed into this yellow cabin and the cabin set on fire and He's just there, and she's just saying, "This is like all my pain is gone because I all that anxiety is like I see above it now because she's right. in that like haunted cults that right and you know, but also you know it's pulling her in a bad place.
0: Well, that's that's like David Lynch has got a real twisted kind of motivation. That kind of he plays those things out as far as you can take them, but it's creative, you know. It's it's what people do. I mean, I. You can't fault anybody for what they do. It's like what that's that's what they think. I mean, there's there's a there's a thing. Once I I met um, Alfred Hitchcock, and Alfred, I walked up and I said, you know, I'm a young filmmaker. Do you got any advice for a young filmmaker? And he didn't want to talk. He was like, you know, he got he got the vibe like he was absolutely not. He was busy and he didn't want to be bothered. I was bothering him, and he said, give the people what they want. Oh my! Give the people what they want, okay? And then it was like, "Get out of here, kid! I'm busy." So I like, okay, thank you, Mister, uh, you know, uh, Hitchcock. Uh, thank you for that. I'm, I'm leaving, and I left. And give the people what they want. So I mean, if you figure out, give the people what they want. What do people want? I mean, it's Quentin Tarantino thinks people want, you know, they want to glorify sex, violence and drugs and and that's what he so and it's true so give the people what they want because they want to see people as dead as you could possibly get them the best shootout you could possibly do you know blood squirting you know people getting their heads chopped off whatever that is. so th- that's fine because that's commercialism that that'll give you success because that's what the people want. It's the opium that, that 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 allows them to come back for more what but did
1: the- your want to give to the people
0: Well, I think what you want to do is you want to, I mean, that, and and what I think for Quentin Tarantino, he got all this celebrity, all this money, all this opportunity to do real good work. And if you get to the soul of the person, if he has one, you recognize that I got a duty to society to put back in it something of social redeeming value that aligns kind of with what, what's right in the world and and that why would i glorify things that are the opposite of that right and so one you find out what the person's made of okay well that's it he's not made there's no soul in there it's lights out right so then you have to think well the masses like that they love that because they can't get enough of it and it's like the the you know, I worked for CNN if it if it bleeds it leads people to give the people Alfred Hitchcock give the people what they want. And what do they want they want just sensationalism they want they if it bleeds it leads and so. I guess if you're in the pursuit of money and you're you want to commercialize your 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 i i think it really comes down to an individual and what you're made of yourself and the duty you have to mankind ultimately that you have a duty to to like put into the world if you're going to spend this time and money and in in your art to to embrace the things that are stalwart kind of uh mores and and um uh, things that you know young and old need to need to regenerate and and keep fostered as as um, roadmaps to who you are and what you should what you should be in life and it should be it should be put into cinema and into stories and into and, and it should be embraced and it should be uh, celebrated because those yeah. things are those things are like dinosaurs they don't go away well they don't go away but they're not infused in everyday life so you don't you know you think about all the you know the thing about the thing about kbev one of the things about kbev is it's a rare institution when you walk into it it doesn't matter what level you are where you came from you're going to get embraced with the idea that i'm somebody and you're going to get praised for like the smallest gesture of creativity. And you're going to take that little, that little bit of praise and you're going to like blow it up because nobody praises anybody for anything anymore for creative. You're like creative, you know, just screw that. That's like a joke. That's nothing. But the idea is if you give somebody just a little encouragement, the world is starved especially young you know young people are starved for just give me a little pat on the shoulder tell me i'm okay at this tell me i'm like i could do this and 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 when you do that it fosters this like it's it's like this creative force in somebody that they they would have never discovered but that but but given given the idea that you nurtured it and gave it some some credence that that's all they needed, and then they run with it. And that's kind of like movies and stories, and and uh, that kind of uh, message has to be has to be uh, front and center, no matter how it's packaged.
1: Yeah, and on that note, I think it's uh, it's time I call it a night.
0: I'm good. I think we did pretty good,
1: Ariel Benayan. So too. it's great to hear from you, Mr. Carey. I Same hope to here. See you, give you an a Roman handshake soon. Um, my parents don't live very far away from Beverly Hills High School, so I, when the time comes, I could just walk there one day and just knock on your door and and just kind of scare the students silly if you want.
0: <laughs> oh, absolutely. Anytime you're ready, you got an open invitation, Ariel. Great, Perfect. great to uh, have you uh, in this little podcast. I will put it all together and I'll send you i uh, I'll send you a link. Cool. It'll be tonight. That's how fast we'll get it out. Perfect. Just all right. To- yeah. All right. Take care. We'll speak soon, my friend. See you, Mr. C. All right. All right. Bye, bye, Ariel.
1: Bye.